three, two, one. And you're listening to the number one nature podcast, the Animal Chat Podcast with, well, it's only bloody well me, Matthew Payne, and guess who else is for the ride? It's me, Harry Ekman. Surprise, surprise. We are the ant and deck of the podcast world. Which one are you? I'll be ant. Good choice. Everyone's always called me a bit of a dick. So, um, <laughs> just thought about that. that is the sort of material, ladies and gentlemen, you are tuning in for. Now, Harry. Yes. What have you been doing? What have I been doing? I have been stealing kittens. I've got to be honest with you, Matt. I've been stealing kittens. Doesn't look good, Harry. Explain yourself. I've already got the police. What's the Portugal? What, what's the code for Portugal? It's um, zero, zero, Portugal, I think. Okay, let me type that. Zero, zero, Portugal. The police are... I've got them. It's ringing, Harry. Explain yourself. Why are you kidnapping kittens? I think it's called catnapping kittens, but there you go. So my wife and I were... Uh, we took a few days away a couple of weeks ago, and we went down to a quiet little hilly section of the Algarve just for a few days away. Yeah, we rented Aww. a little quiet villa, and, you know, just like a little romantic getaway, which was completely ruined by, on our first evening there, a little mum cat turns up, starving, like proper emaciated cat meowing at the back door. Mm. So being the good-natured animal people that we are, we gave her some food and checked her over and made sure she was all right. And basically, long story short... After four days, we realized that she, in fact, had a litter of four kittens that we then proceeded to feed and look after and then trap and then take to the vets and then bring back with us because they were in such a horrible state with, to be honest, not a very good chance of survival. So they're now living in our spare room, which is our office. And my wife is currently in there trying to work our <laughs> any exposed bit of flesh that we have whether it be legs or arms now look like we're self-harmers because these kids have got to the point where they are climbing on anything that is climbable and that includes human flesh they're about nine weeks old now and they're crazy sweet lovely little kittens that we're we're going to start rehoming soon the mum we've already got a home for and so, yeah, that's that's what I've been up to this week, fostering kittens instead of enjoying a vacation. Oh, look at you. you. You're not just all words, are you? You do it as well. You're an actual animal rescuer. I am an actual animal rescuer. My wife is an actual. This actually was really nice for her because I've obviously done fostering and rescues and things before. Um, obviously. But this just obviously, you know, obviously. come on. Please, hello. It's Harry Eggman. Yeah, you're fucking Bloody talking hell. to here, mate. Like, you know, I invented rescuing. Exactly. I don't know what the <laughs> company accent was about. But anyway, carry on. I don't know what that was about. Um, but it was my wife's first experience of fostering kittens and seeing a mum nursing kittens and seeing the beautiful story of life unfold in front of you. It was really lovely, actually. How's she enjoying it? How's Renata? She's re- no, she's really enjoying it. She's really loving the kittens. She's. Uh, we've got to the point now where we're going through, are we going to keep one of these kittens? Are yeah. we going to keep all of these kittens? Are we... We're not. We're going to find good homes for them all here locally, and we've already started the process. Yeah, it's just been a really nice experience to um, to do this. And um, I don't know about you, Matt, but one of the things that when I always worked at a shelter and one of the things that people always said to you is, oh, I don't know how you do this. Because they go in there and they see the shelter and they see the animals that need homes. And for me, the thing that got me through was seeing the whole story. 
anybody that walks into a shelter, they see a snapshot, a moment in time of a, a sad dog or a sad cat or an animal that has had a something happened to it that and it needs a new home. And it's always kind of sad. But when you work in animal welfare, you get to see the whole story. And so for me, it's just really lovely to know that these cats came from really dire situation and their odds of survival were pretty precarious. And now seeing them grow and seeing them happy and seeing them go off to new homes, it's a, it's a really nice thing to be part of. Yeah, when people used to always ask me, how do you, you know, how do you do this? How do you get through this? I just used to say Valium. Honestly, for me, it's just alcohol for me. Oh, yeah. Like, no, I haven't been sober in two and a half weeks, mate. I'm literally pissed as a fart right now. <laughs> So, Harry, that was a lovely tale about you going out there, rescuing some beautiful cats, bringing them home. Like you said, we don't just chat about animals. We save, we help. This is more than just a podcast for us. Exactly. We, well, yeah, I do fuck all. Um, so, you walked the dog today? I mean, that's... Yeah, dogs, dogs. And I work for a, a dog charity, so, you know, I'm doing my bit. But, Harry, we are going to be speaking to today... Oh, Oscar winner. Ooh, Oscar winner. We got Oscar winners on there. This guy was on the Joe Rogan podcast, the number one podcast in the world. He went from that to this. Yeah. Just that those sort of people we are now liaising with, yeah. we're talking with. We don't want to talk to you. If you used to work with us... Don't think you can just talk to us now. No. Because we probably think you're riffraff. <laughs> we we've got Oscar winners following us now. And link, you know, we've got their emails addresses. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to talk to just anybody in animal welfare. If no. you haven't won an international award, I yeah. just haven't got time for you anymore. No. Just think before you message us. That's all I want to say. Harry and I have Harry and I have enough shit to get through now. We've got people messaging us about trying to enhance our popularity on podcasts. People messaging us on LinkedIn saying, oh, will it pay us and we'll make you more popular? Oh. More popular? We got more Oscar popular. on our podcast. That's how popular yeah. we are. Harry doesn't even say the word podcast correctly anymore. That's how popular we are. He calls it a podcast. Is that what I, is that what I know, just said? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if you're one of those people and you're thinking, can I get in contact with these? Just think because we now hang around with Oscar winners. So who is it that's on the podcast, Harry? It's only Louis Sahoyas. Academy Award-winning director of The Cove. And he founded the Oceanic Preservation Society. Yes, he did. And not only that, I mean, a lot of people go, hello, founded my own preservation society, only just directed my own bloody well Oscar-winning documentary. I'll sit down, I'll put my feet up, drink a bit of champagne. Oh, no. He only goes and makes game changers. I believe the most downloaded documentary in history. Absolutely right. Number one downloaded documentary in history. What's he going to do next? I don't know. What's he going to do next? I don't know. I don't know. He's going to come on this podcast. That's what he's going to do next, Harry. See what I did there? See what I did? After all that, his career is on an upward trajectory. And being on this podcast, I I don't know where he can go from here, to be honest. We're letting him come on the number one podcast in Croatia. He's now, his career is made. You know, it's going to be Oscar, whatever Netflix give you. And then next to that, he'll just have the picture of the time that he was on this podcast. Yeah. And that's going to be in his office. And he can retire now, as far as I'm concerned. And you know what? When people go up to him and he goes, oh, who, who are you? And they'll go, I'm Louis Sahoyas. And they'll go, who? 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 And they'll go, oh, Louis Sahoyas from The Cove. Eh, what? 
Louisa Hoyas from Game Changers. What? Louisa Hoyas, guest on the Animal Chuck podcast. Ah, that's where I know you oh, from. That's where I know you from. Yeah, we know you that. We listen to it in Portugal or Ireland. Yeah, the number one rated nature Japan. podcast in all of those countries. Or fifth. Or t- in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. In all of those countries. Anyway, yeah. you know what? We digress because Louisa Hoyas did direct The Cove, and this podcast is absolutely fantastic because his story is amazing. How he got involved in the story of The Cove, his background as a National Geographic photographer. He was a world-renowned photographer before he started doing this. Worked for Fortune magazine as well. Met some incredible people and had this opportunity to tell the story of the Cove. And he talks about how this opportunity came around in the podcast and what's happened as a result since. And it was just absolutely fascinating talking to him because his story is just like one in a million. And the impact of the Cove for you personally as well, Matt. I mean, the Cove, I know we, you talk about this on the podcast, but it had a really profound impact on you. Yeah, it changed my life, really. I won't go into it too much because I talk about it on the podcast, but it was one of the most influential documentaries. I know not just for me, but for many people that I know who work in the industry. The Cove really was the launch pad for many other conservation animal rights documentaries like Virunga, like Blackfish. So yeah, it's huge. And Louis talks about that and and how that came about and how he met Rico Barry, the sort of the quote unquote star of the documentary and... um, it was just a great chat. What a privilege. Really was. We were very, very lucky to have Louis on this podcast. And mm. how about we just share it with everybody? Yeah. You're going to listen now to the Animal Chat Podcast with Louis Sawyers. sure you get told this every single day but the cove for me was harry's had to listen to this story so many times Louis. so <laughs> if you hear him getting annoyed in the back i'm gonna go get a cup of coffee yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your film was almost like this light switch moment for me and i remembered all this area that i loved and this issue and this sort of part of me that i'd hidden away that i don't know it just saw like a, it released an empathy for the natural world again in me and I've not looked back. That movie literally changed my life. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you to you. Well, thank you. But, you know, it's, it's really, when you're making a film, it's such a team effort. You know, there's so many people that were responsible for that film. When you see the credits roll, there's I mean, literally hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, each one of them was incredibly valuable. A film is a collaborative experience, and I, I really enjoyed it, the whole process. And what you went through, we do hear that quite a bit, and that makes me feel good because it, it means that we're on the right path. I think film is one of the most powerful weapons in the world that we have for social change. You talk, you do a podcast, you make it tens of thousands of people or some of the more successful ones, you know, several hundred thousand or a million, but a documentary like The Cove has been literally seen by tens of millions of people. We don't know how many, but hopefully a a percentage of them get switched on. It affects people differently across the board. Some people, they look at it as a film and nothing to do with their life. Other people, it, it does change their life and it creates an awakening for people. But that was, it was intentional that we wanted to make a film that wasn't just a documentary. Most Hollywood producers or directors look at the audience's butts and seats. $10 in a box of popcorn is a popular refrain. And I never looked at the audience like that. I look at it as 
minds and seats. The brain is plastic. You can actually change it. And just, I think, in 90 minutes of watching a film or taking compassion training, you can actually physically change the way the brain is hardwired. And you can do that with a film. And that's what I do is I used to be a still photographer. And you're always thinking about what are you going to put in the frame? What are you going to leave out? How can you direct the viewer to have an emotional, intellectual experience at the same time? And film is just so much easier than photography. It's really, some people say it's the same thing. It's just film is just photography at 24 frames a second. But there's all these other characters, the the composer, the writer, the producers, everybody you bring into the process, the team. At the end of the day, I wanted to to change the way people thought about the oceans. And, you know, I, I look at it as a normal film, a Hollywood film is a roller coaster ride. You go up and you get excited and you have this swath of emotions and you come back and mm-hmm. it's like nothing's really changed, right? It's just, it was about the ride, but the ride with our film is hopefully at the same time using the same techniques of, you know, you're telling a story, you're, but you're making them think. We're trying to make the connection to this emotional experience they're having in their own lives. Mm-hmm. So people do come out of the film and they become vegetarian or vegan, or they start looking at their animals differently. They, they, they change their jobs. They Hopefully they look at life differently, but that's with intention. It wasn't like, oh, look at the you know the output of the film. It, it did something by happenstance. No, we, we thought about that because it changed me being there. It changed everybody in the crew that was at the Cove. The Cove, for people that don't know, it's about dolphin hunting in Japan. Oh, I'll ask a question. I could I could ramble on for quite a while about, <laughs> about the, the, the about the origins of it, but no. it was intentional that we that we made you. <laughs> Obviously, you're aware that the influence that the Cove has had on on so many people. Matt's story is replicated so often about how influential the result was. But there's another side to that, which is the power of the film itself. So I work with a lot of organizations around the world, animal welfare, animal rights, animal protection organizations, and your film has become shorthand for the kind of film and the kind of impact that people now want to make. I can't tell you the number of times I've had a conversation with an organization. They said, we want to make a documentary about our work. We want to make our version of The Cove. And it's a very simple shorthand. And it's great because you know exactly what they mean. But equally, it's not great because (laughs) it's not that simple to find that way of storytelling. And when you actually went through the process, because if I remember correctly, this came out of conversations that you and Jim Clark had had about wanting to make a difference and and seeing the, the issues and actually wanting to do something about it. How did you find the right story to tell? Because there must have been so many ways of approaching what it was that you were trying to address. How did you refine it down to the cove, to the Taji Dolphins? Yeah, well, a good question. Um, You know, first of all, Jim Clark, for people that know, is uh, sort of the Steve Jobs of my generation. I'm, I'm 63. When I was growing up, Jim Clark had, he's one of these serial entrepreneurs. He took three businesses that from scratch, they, they didn't exist before. You know, he, he invented, uh, when he's a Stanford professor, he invented the 3D graphics engine, which is the way that you can design things in three dimensionals in re- real time. Gaming is possible because of the engine that he built. The resulting computer company, Silicon Graphics, was the Apple computer of our time. The day he quit that, he started Netscape, the first commercial internet browser, the first way that mortals could get onto the internet. Uh, when I met him, he started a, a company called WebMD and another one called Shutterfly was just beginning. And all those companies went on to be worth billions of dollars, maybe Shutterfly, not quite so much. But 
I wanted to photograph Jim Clark when I worked at National Geographic as a still photographer. I was doing a story on the information revolution and I couldn't get access to him. He was just way too busy. Then later on, when I quit National Geographic, I was working at Fortune magazine and uh, they wanted me to photograph him for the cover. He was building a boat that had the world's tallest mast. I went to Amsterdam and we uh, had a drink afterwards. And he said, would I teach him how to be a good photographer? And I said, Jim, I'll teach you how to be a great one if you teach me how to be a billionaire. <laughs> and um, I spent about the next 10 years on and off, you know, every vacation I had or chance to get away for a week or two, we'd go diving and we loved to, to dive in the oceans. That was our, our connection. He built the best underwater camera in the world ever made by an order of magnitude because he wasn't happy. It was like one of these guys that was obsessed with perfection. And I was too. I mean, if you look at my body work with photography, I kind of fancied myself an artist. And he was like, these cameras for underwater work are crap. And, and you know, he tested the best ones, putting a Hasselblad underwater. He said, they're all junk. Why, why doesn't somebody build a good one? I said, well, Jim, it's expensive and it's complicated. And so he built this medium format view camera to take underwater. He bought the world's best lens for a medium format and had a dome port built for it, like, you know, a quarter of a million dollar dome port. Wow. And we made two of them and we went underwater and we, we were trying to, what the, the mission was, is we were trying to document the reefs before they disappeared. Because he's one of these guys, you know, when you look at somebody like Jim Clark or Steve Jobs or, you know, Larry Ellison or Bill Gates, all these people I met at, when I worked at Fortune magazine, they're all looking into the future quite a bit, like a little bit further than the rest of us can do. And they figure out, you know, they plot a business to try to work for that eventuality. And Jim Clark was one of these people that looked out and said, everything's disappearing. Everything's going to crap. But the ocean is the most beautiful experience that we'd both ever had looking at these reefs, these jewel boxes underwater full of life. And he wanted to preserve them on film. And so we, that's what, that was our mission. Build the best camera in the world, document the reefs before they disappear. It's almost like trying to document Africa 100 years ago before it disappeared. You know, because of acidification, oceans warming, overfishing, all these multitude of insults that the oceans are hitting. He's trying to create this camera to preserve the beauty so humanity has a baseline of what we lost. That's the mission. And every time we would go back to a dive site, we'd see this degradation going on. You know, he said, Louis, I want to take you to the best place I've ever been in Papua New Guinea. So we, we flew there. It takes, you know, a full day to get there on his plane. We sail a, a day and a half to get to this spot. We dive on the, or he dives on the coordinates. I'm going to do the second dive and it's gone. It's in rubble. And he's, he's literally in tears coming up. And this sort of replicates itself over the next several years where we'll go the third time we were in the Galapagos, there was fishermen illegally fishing in a marine sanctuary. And after, you know, years of doing this, coming back to these sites that we both loved and seeing this degradation going on, less fish and dynamite fishing. And he said to me, Louis, somebody should do something about this. And I said, how about you and I? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, use your money in my eye and we'll make films. And I'd never made a film before. I didn't have any business really thinking I could make a documentary film. I just thought I, this is the way to do it. We can tell a, a more complicated story if we can do film. But I was all excited about, you know, getting into this new career. And I was on vacation with him and his family uh, down in the Caribbean. He had built this another boat by that time. It was a theme of the world's largest private sailboat. And my kid starts playing on the beach with another kid. It happens to be Steven Spielberg's kid. <laughs> and Steven comes over to the boat and because he made Jurassic Park using Jim's computer at Silicon Graphics. And when I had him alone for a couple seconds, I said, uh, Mr. Spielberg, do you have any advice for a first-time filmmaker? 
And he says, he says, yeah, never make a movie involving boats or animals. And, you know, everything I'm about to do is because we're still, Jim and I are starting this organization called the Oceanic Preservation Society. Everything's going to be about boats and animals. <laughs> but it's sort of a long-winded way to answer your question. You know, Jim and I were really going to be making, a, the first documentary was going to really be what became the, our second film, Racing Extinction. I was going around to marine mammal conferences, ocean conferences, trying to figure out what are the biggest stories I can concentrate on. And it was overwhelming. I mean, it was like there was so much going on. What do you talk about? You can't just like make a litany of all the problems that are going on in the ocean. Even 12 years ago when we made that film, people were going to have compassion fatigue. And then at one of these conferences, I if you've ever been to the, one of these whale conferences where you have 2,000 PhDs talking at these very high level poster sessions where the each person will talk for 15 minutes about their area of expertise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have another one and you have like three ballrooms going on like this. And one is more high level than the next. And it's, you know, for me that yeah. doesn't have a PhD is kind of exhausting because they're really talking to each other. You know, they're, they're, tr they're trying to prove how smart they are and trying to move up the pecking order. They're great people. But I think it's just the way it works. When you get into a, an academic situation, people are trying to be smarter than the next one. It's just the way it works. They're competing in that field. And I was getting kind of exhausted. And on a video night, on a Saturday night, Rick O'Berry, the guy who trained Flipper, was supposed to be giving a presentation. I thought, well, finally, you know, somebody I can relate to from popular culture. <laughs> and he was supposed to talk. He was, For people that know, Rick O'Berry was a, the dolphin trainer who captured and trained the five female dolphins that collectively played the part of Flipper for the popular television series when I was a kid called Flipper. And at the last moment, the organizers of the festival wouldn't let him talk because the conference was run by the Hubs Research Institute, the nonprofit arm of SeaWorld. And then you started to realize, of course, they wouldn't let him talk. But I, at that time, I, I asked, I called him up and asked him what he was going to talk about. He said, oh, I was going to talk about the dolphin hunt in Japan. And I was just horrified. Like, people hunt dolphins? They kill more dolphins than any place in the world. This is where most of the dolphins of the world for dolphin parks, dolphinariums, are captured and then they train them and then they sell them to dolphin parks around the world. And I thought, well, that could be an interesting part of a story about the oceans. And then when I got there to Taiji, you know, <laughs> the funny story is like, he said, well, I'm going next week. Do you want to come? I said, well, you go, I'll catch up with you. I took a three-day crash course on how to make a film. And hmm. then I went to Taiji, Japan with a, a small crew. And I mean, we were just kicking around. And I remember we tried to talk to the fishermen there. They wouldn't talk to us. We you know, met with the town council. They wouldn't talk to us about the story. And I thought, hmm, there could be something interesting here, you know, because you know, there's a secret cove where they kill thousands of dolphins every year. They won't talk about it. It goes on. Nobody's been able to really get back there and show what goes on. This could be an interesting story. The more I thought about it, it sounded like if we focused in on this one little cove, maybe we could almost tell the whole story of what we're trying to tell. Like the Japanese fishermen said, they're killing the dolphins partly because they're, they're competing for food. Mm. And the, the dolphin meat, by the way, is toxic because of all the heavy metals that we put into the ocean, cadmium, lead, mercury from the burning of fossil fuels. It all bioaccumulates in the flesh of dolphins and so that they're toxic. And they were force feeding it to school kids in the school systems there. In Japan, you weren't allowed to bring your own meals from home. So you had to eat everything on your plate, which when they're serving dolphin meat was toxic dolphin meat. Every bit of dolphin meat that's been tested in Japan last 30 years has had anywhere from five to 5,000 times more mercury than allowed by Japanese law if it was a fish. And so there's a loophole, obviously, because dolphins aren't fish, they're mammals. So thereby the fishermen get to sell this toxic meat to the school systems. 
So I thought, well, this is a way I can talk about overfishing, degradation of the oceans, what we're doing to our counterparts in the oceans. And then it became the cove. Looking into the investigation of the cove sort of became a, a shorthand or way to look at what we're doing to the ocean. So if you look at on the surface, it looks like a, a story about dolphin hunting and the sort of transformation of this man, Rickleberry, who captured and trained him. But it's also about what we're, humanity is doing to the oceans and look at these other sentient, intelligent creatures. If you look at it, you know, a dolphin has, a lot of the species have bigger brains than us. They have an extra lobe of the brain. There's more convolutions of the gray matter, those sort of the folds. In each one of the folds, there's neurons. They, they're, they're bigger, more complex. If you were to look at a dolphin brain and a human brain and you weren't a human with your own bias, you look at it and say, that's a more complicated brain. Yeah. There's more going on there. We don't know what's going on there. And so we're predisposed to say, oh, they're not as smart as us. Because why? Because they're, they can't run a computer. They can't run cars. They can't build planes. You know, But you know, we look at other species through our own bias. And I think what the cove does is it peels this away. What if these animals are, in fact, intelligent? Mm. In fact, they're way more intelligent than we give them credit for. Even the trainers say that. They can readily decipher commands and, and learn extremely quickly, probably quicker than a human being can. But what they do in Japan is they, they kill them. And then they, the ones that they don't kill, they force them to do tricks for food. And then they sell them for, you know, sometimes up to a few hundred thousand dollars per animal. So it was a, an amazing story that we dropped into and people had been able to get it because either they didn't put the time into it. They didn't have the truth spot to try to get into the cove. I mean, it was very difficult. They had police guarding it. They had guard dogs. They had sensors. And, you know, we kind of had like a small military operation of using high tech tools like FLIR cameras and remote control devices, et cetera, to, to see what was, was actually going on in there. And then it became a thriller. You know, it, just the, the act of getting in the cove felt like a thriller. And I always knew that if I was excited about doing something, if you could convey that excitement, that thrill, the act of doing it, if you could put that through to the viewer, they would intrinsically get excited too. And that's kind of what we did. And that was the genius of the other people and the crew besides me. There's, you know, the production team, Mark Monroe, the writer, Fisher Stevens, the producer, uh, Jeff Richman, the editor. It's a, and it's a whole team that's sort of like, yeah, let's make this like a, not just a, a Nova piece, like a sort of a science piece about dolphin hunting. Let's make it more like a thriller. I think Rolling Stone magazine in the States called it a cross between Born Identity and Flipper, the film. <laughs> in a, in the, the film, initially, we were just trying to get the film like into a film festival. I thought we had won the biggest prize in the world when we finally got the film in the Sundance Film Festival for the premiere. And then it had this other life. You know, I remember I told at that point I was a pretty successful uh, still photographer. I'd made a not a pile of money, but I made enough money that I didn't have to work for a while. And I told the crew there's about 18 people that were actually produced the movie. And I said, "Well, I'll pay for everybody to come to Park City, Utah." I stupidly thought Park City, Utah. You know, how expensive could it possibly be? Well, it turns up. When Hollywood all descends on a town, it's very expensive because they, they buy up every house that they can, an apartment and every hotel from 20 miles away. So it's very expensive. So I ended up having to rent three houses. It cost me like $50,000. And I was like, we were there for the premiere. We had a couple showings and I wanted to get everybody out of town so I wouldn't like be hemorrhaging money. And they said, aren't you going to stick around for the awards? And I was like, what awards? I thought getting into the festival was the award. <laughs> And then um, they said, oh, on Saturday night, the last night of the festival, there's this awards festival and you, you guys have a good chance of doing it. It seems it's like a popular film that we once Sundance, the audience award, which I think is the, now in retrospect, having been a judge there and, and seen a lot of films, that's the best award you can get. 
but the film took off and just you know started winning a lot of awards. It became the most award-winning documentary in history as the first film to sweep all the film guilds. It went to to win the Academy Award, but that was the collateral of trying to do the work. It wasn't like we never set off and say, let's make an award-winning film. We thought, let's make a film that's going to change the way people think about the oceans and, and animals. And I think the success was really looking at what's the objective, what's the intention of the film, rather than let's try to make a film that's, I don't know, going to check all these other boxes like for awards. Why, probably just, that's half the podcast right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's absolutely fascinating. Luke. We could do a whole podcast about the code, but for me, what I loved about the film was the haunted character almost of Rick, this individual who seemed to be fighting this fight that no one was listening to. And then the whole world started to listen after that. And while you were talking then, I was just thinking, Louis, what what you must have felt if you could have looked back when you were young, how would you have felt thinking one day you were going to win an Academy Award <laughs> for a movie maker for a film linked to the guy that trained and sort of worked with Flipper? Did you have sort of, when you were young and you were growing up, did you have a, have a love for animals? Was that love there or was it something that developed later on? Well, it's, it's certainly my own genesis of, I got interested in the oceans. Well, first of all, Iowa is a landlocked state in America. It's You're about as far from the ocean as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. But at National Geographic, uh, Jacques Cousteau had a special and it was like, it was an event that you, you know, you put on your calendar as a kid, like, oh my God, Jacques Cousteau's going to have a new, new special. And just, I think it was called the Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau. And it was just so exciting going into this other universe. And so growing up, I wanted to be an oceanographer. And um, I also wanted to be a photographer because I got National Geographic. And back then you had about as good of a chance of being, you know, when I was a kid, you either wanted to be an astronaut or a photographer for National Geographic because that, you know, I guess it was a sense of adventure, but you had a better chance of being an astronaut back then than a geographic photographer because they had more astronauts than they did photographers. And the photographers, by the way, at National Geographic didn't change jobs. I started working there as an intern back around 1980, and nobody had left there, or they I should say nobody had, uh, they didn't hire anybody new in the last 11 years. I was a pretty good photographer. You know, I won a contest called College Photographer of the Year. And everybody would ask me, well, what do you do after you do an internship? And I was like, I want to work here. And they said, well, yeah, you and everybody else. But I, I proposed a story for them that they liked. It was on garbage and recycling. And they thought, well, let's see what he can do. And um, that became the most popular story of the year by readership surveys. And they ended up hiring me after that. And I got a little bit lost in my mission. I wanted to do f- stories like the one I proposed, like on garbage and recycling. I wanted to use photography to sort of advance our culture. That was the intention. And Geographic back then was a very, very powerful magazine in the sense that a lot of people saw it. And it was well-respected. About 11 million people saw it just in America. Sorry, 11 million people got the magazine. For every magazine that was out there, about another four people saw it. So, you know, 44 million people seeing it every month. So a story comes out and it could have a large impact. I worked for them for the course of about 18 years. I guess I've been a little bit, I've always been a little bit of a dreamer that, you know, to think that I could even work there. It's, it requires, I don't know, probably a little bit of, like you have to sort of disregard what everybody thinks, right? Because nobody's worked here. What makes you think you're so special? Well, I think I have some ideas that would be valuable. You know, so you have to think a little bit outside of the box. Um, 
I did want to be an oceanographer, and I think forty years later, I sort of, sort of did become one. I, I would never pretend to be that. I can talk at the level of the PhDs, for instance, I could, that I couldn't understand at some of those conferences. But I did want to do what Jacques Cousteau did, which was charge up an, another generation and make them feel excited, not just about the oceans, but about life itself. It's such a miracle to be on the planet. You know, people just don't understand what a miracle life is. There's trillions of chemical reactions going on on a cellular level in our body every second. And yet everything is all about trying to get something that comes from this organ up the top of our, our body to use language to communicate it to somebody else. I couldn't begin to organize everything that's going on in my body. Somehow it happens, and then somehow it all comes down to form words and communicate to another person. To what advantage? To what purpose? And I think the purpose is to alleviate suffering. It's to to make ourselves, you know, give ourselves and others around us joy, you know, as opposed to happiness. Happiness being defined as a big car, a big house, more money, power, sex, whatever those things that come from outside of us. The stuff that gives us joy is when we help others. I think that's what probably Jacques Cousteau felt, is that the joy of being underwater, you know, that's what I got out of there, that thrill of being in touch with a different universe, you know, the universe of his undersea world. And I guess that's what I wanted to do. I think the whole crew wanted to do with the Cove is to switch people on to, there's this other reality out there that we're not paying attention to. It's the biggest blind spot that we as humans have is not just nature, but there's, there's all these other species out there. We're just one. We don't even know how many species are on, we're on the planet with by an order of magnitude. Some people say 8 million, some people say 30 million, maybe 300 million. Depends on you know how you divide life forms up. But you have this one species, Homo sapien, this big brain, arrogant, hairless ape, whose name means the wise one. So that's what Homo sapiens means. And yet the wise one is destroying the, the landscape for all these other animals that came through the same gauntlet of history to be here. You know, we all went through four and a half billion years to be sitting here talking to each other today. And yet our actions are causing the demise of the natural world and all these other species that came through history to, to be here with us. That's a pretty big story. And I think what we're trying to do at my organization, OPS, is we're trying to switch on, we're trying to reverse this trend. And I know it's a, it sounds pretty crazy. It sounds really lofty, but that's the intention. I don't think you can start your day and say, well, I hope I change the world. It was hope I trip and fall and, you know, the world gets changed. It's like, no, we're constantly making films so that we can change the way, you know, create a whole new civilization coming up of warriors to help on this issue. Because it's the biggest issue in the world, bar none. I think that, you know, we can always look and say, well, what are the big events in, in human history? You know, was it? World War II, World War One, the Inquisition, Indians discovering Columbus on the shores of America, whatever you think it is, this is the biggest story in the world because we're the only generation that can influence, that can change right now this, what, what scientists are calling the Anthropocene, the age of man, where one species is causing the sixth mass extinction on the planet. You know, we're yeah. causing it and therefore the solution is pretty simple. We can stop causing it. And that's, I would say that's the intention of what we're trying to do these days is use films to create this army of environmentalists and warriors to help reverse the biggest problem that humanity has ever faced.
I think that's so important. It's it's funny when you were talking just a moment ago and saying, you know, that we call ourselves the wise ones. And I'm imagining all the other animals in the world going, oh, you, you gave yourself that name, did you? <laughs> you didn't bother asking us because we might have a differing opinion there. But, you know, OK, if, if you want to call yourselves that, I think it's going to come and bite you in the ass in a little while because we're seeing how you decimate the environment. You're not that wise, but... Um, I agree with you entirely about the power of filmmaking. I mean, Matt was saying just before about the influence the Cove had on him, and you were talking about the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. And my wife, again, that was a powerful, powerful influence on her. She has a love of diving, and and she's passed that love of it on to me as well. And with the Cove, it was a very specific story from the point of view of, you know, if you want to describe it as a thriller, there was a clear villain and there was a hero and there was a a mystery to solve and a nefarious goings on that had to be uncovered. But obviously you, you said yourself that that you discovered that story when you were looking at the bigger issues and the, and the film that became racing extinction. And so when you look at those huge issues, how do you balance that in the storytelling with with keeping that hope alive of like, we've done all this as a species, but there's still stuff that we can do. And here's how we make the difference. Here's how we make the change. Yeah. Well, you know, by the way, that's, so if people haven't seen The Cove, when we started that film, they were killing about 23,000 dolphins and porpoises every year in Japan for human consumption. The last year, I believe that we have for the totals of animals, again, dolphins and porpoises they killed, I think it was 1,610. I mean, somebody else can do the math, but it's like over 93%, 97% reduction of dolphin and porpoise deaths because of the actions around that film. So it wasn't just about the, you know, if we just did a story about the awareness without thinking about like, how are we going to solve the problem? I think it destroys hope. I think that these days, I think we try to make the problem, you know, try to put that in act one and act two and have hope go throughout the film so that people can see a clear way out that they can do themselves. Um, right after we did the code, we did a film called Racing Extinction, which is about this issue. We were just talking about the Anthropocene. And like I said, there's multiple drivers of extinction. You know, we try to give the sense that the impossible is possible. One of the things that we wanted to do in that film well, back up a little bit, to, to create cultural change, massive cultural change, there's some really good science that shows you need 10% of the population, 100% committed to an idea, and then change is inevitable. The models that the scientists ran, we looked at the suffragette movement, civil rights movement, Arab Spring. They also ran experiments within a like a classroom about using information to see how, how quickly an idea could come across. You could have proponents, advocates. And it, they found that 10% of the population, 100% committed, was the tipping point for social change. So that's good news for environmentalists or animal rights activists or, or anybody working on something that's they're dealing with the truth, is that once you get 10% of the population, not seven, not six, you don't need 17 or 51%, only 10% of the population gives it real hope. And you look at technological innovations, they happen extremely rapidly. You know, there's a, a famous picture that was shot from a building on Broadway in Manhattan, New York City, looking down at the Easter parade in the year 1900, 1900. And it's like all horses. And remember back then, it looks charming, right? To see all these horses in Manhattan, but there's 300,000 horses, 60,000 gallons of urine going on the streets every day, piles of shit, on the streets with very little maintenance on it. Sailors could smell the city from six miles out. 
seriously, this is, I've been reading up on it lately. It was a mess. Now, and there was, in this picture, there was one car, all horses, one car. 13 years later, it's completely reversed. It's all cars, one horse. And of course, now, you know, cars and gasoline has its own set of problems. But the point is these technological innovations usually take about 10, 12 years, and then it, it takes off with wildfire. The same thing with, you know, you look at phones 12 years ago, we were hitting the, the number two key six times on our flip phones to type the letter capital C. And, you know, we, we forget. I think, My mom still does. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at, you know, I, I look at the animal rights movement as almost like a technological problem. You know, we have a better food source. It's called plants. And we're at that cusp right now. I was reading just this last week that 8% of people under 20 now regard themselves as either vegetarians or vegans, which is up from just like a 1% just a few years ago. Mm. And so I think we're at the beginning of this hockey stick curve where we're going to see a revolution in people rediscovering that a plant-based diet is superior to eating animals. And, you know, by the way, eating animals is not just the, you know, one of the largest causes of extinction. It's the largest cause of habitat destruction, the largest cause of freshwater pollution. 80 to 85% of the diseases, the chronic diseases that we have that kill the most humans and beings in the planet are reversible by stopping eating animals and, and switching to a whole foods plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. The people that live the longest on the planet are people that adhere to a primarily whole foods plant-based diet. What this means is that plant-based food is at the nexus, is that the, it can solve all these other huge problems that we have. This is hard for people to hear, but that you know, we looked at the data. Why is this diet so hard to get people to switch to, right? We know it's better for human health, for environmental health. It's going to solve all these issues, but people still eat animals. And it wasn't the animal rights movement. When you're talking about compassion, if the average person that eats meat still believes that it's normal, necessary, and natural, they're not going to do it. They're not going to switch. The data was showing that there was people were spending hundreds of millions of dollars for billboards and magazine ads and trying to get this message out. And it was the numbers are stuck at just a few percentage points of the population. And we looked at the data and said, well, what's the obstacle? And the obstacle was men. Men are marketed to, we're marketed to, to think that to be big and strong, have endurance and virility, that you need animal products. And women in general, this is just a generalization, but women, if they go out to eat with a group of friends, get patted on the back with they're eating a quinoa salad, men get chastised. And this is obviously just in general terms. Sure. But we realized until we could reverse that discussion, we, we weren't going to get much further. Mm -hmm. So we did this film called The Game Changers, which is um, a way that to reverse the idea that you need animal products to have all these, you know, to tick this list of endurance, mm -hmm. masculinity, strength, virility. You don't have to do that. In fact, it's a better, superior diet. But we organized that film based on, let's say, a, a typical animal rights person. Again, these are generalities. If they're talking about it from the animal rights perspective, a guy will look at another guy giving me that message and say, well, I don't want to be like you mm. because I believe you need to eat this way. And I don't want to have a, you know, hold up a sign and become an advocate. But a guy, the data shows that a guy will change behavior if he's getting the message from aspirational people, people that he looks mm. up to. So we, we looked at who will the average guy look up to? Athletes. So we did this film called The Game Changers, and we use James Wilkes as the protagonist. And he's like, a, teaches the Navy SEALs how to subdue other people. Uh, he's, a, you know, a killer killer. And he's won the ultimate fighting championship. He's a you know an MMA boxer, and so a guy will look at him and say, "Look, look at he can take down people twice his size. 
You know, a lot of guys would want to be like him to be invincible. And he was a mediator. And so a little bit like Rick O'Berry, James Wilkes thought he was a guy that had to eat meat to be big and strong. You know, if he went into a, a vegan restaurant by accident once, he told me, and, you know, everything was spelled odd. You know, the chicken had a K on it, and, you know, it spells as a sort of an odd angle. And he's, he'd walk away if they didn't have animal products. But then he got injured and found out he did it like a thousand hours of peer-reviewed research trying to figure out what's the ultimate diet to recovery. He was a welterweight in the UFC sparring with a future heavyweight champion. So a guy that had like a hundred pounds on him, he was beating him. This guy just got pissed and attacked him and bent his legs over backwards. And, you know, now he has like nine months of recovery and he's trying to figure out what's the best diet for recovery and finds out that the gladiators, you know, the ultimate mixed martial arts heroes were primarily vegetarians. Pliny the Elder called them the gladiators horiari, which means the, the barley munchers, because that's what they would eat for recovery. And he thought, my God, the gladiators were vegetarian? That's crazy. And then started doing more research and found out there's, you know, one of the world's strongest guys, Patrick Baboumian, carried more weight further than anybody in, in history is plant-based. Scott Jurek, the most accomplished ultra runner in the world, he can run 165 miles in a day, is vegan. You know, the list goes on. So we used him as a central character to deliver this message. And then, of course, we had the scientists. We didn't just cherry pick scientists from, you know, that had white lab coats on and agreed with us. We went to the head of Harvard Nutrition, the head of sustainability at Yale, so that we had great science, compelling characters to deliver this message. And that film, in the first nine days that The Game Changers was on Apple iTunes, it became the most watched documentary and most watched independent film in their history first nine days. And then a, a couple of weeks later, it was on Netflix. And Netflix, they won't give you the, the numbers. They won't give any filmmaker the numbers of how many people viewed it. But we know in the first 30 days that The Game Changes was on Netflix, searches for plant-based diet went up 350% worldwide. Wow. So the film has had a massive impact and continues to have a massive impact because it it's really a you know looking at the problem. We don't talk about animal rights in the film, except we get to act two. You have Damian Mander, who's the founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, has search and destroy tattooed across his, his chest. You know, he went to Africa to help save animals, and he'd get back from a day in the field, and he'd put another animal on the barbecue. And he realized he had this flexible morality that, you know, allowed him to try to save one animal but kill another. And he thought, you know, it's, it's just bullshit that he thought this way. And, you know, he's just looked at the animals that he's trying to protect, you know, the gorillas, and the elephants, and the rhinos. What do they eat? They eat plants the biggest, strongest animals in the world out there. And what do they eat? Plants. You know, that's what a lot, that's, it's oxymoronic because the way that we're marketed to, to be big and strong, to have virility, to have endurance, you know, cut out the middleman, cut out the animals. And you don't have all the other things that come along with eating it. I think The Game Changers was a fantastic documentary. I absolutely loved it. And it tapped into something that Matt and I have talked about a lot, because one of the things that, that Matt and I share in our work is an understanding that, you know, we look at human behavior change drivers. And the thing that you mentioned there is a lot of animal rights activists focus on the animal rights issue, whether it's to do with eating animals or the illegal wildlife trade or any animal cruelty, you focus on the animal. And so many organizations and activists are talking about it from the point of view of trying to convince other people to care about animals as much as we do. Because if that's what we do, then we're going to be able to convince everybody else and, and, and we can change their mind. But what the Game Changers did was 
as you said, it put that aside and it looked at what are the other drivers and health obviously is an important one for, for people and understanding that different audiences are going to be affected by different things. Because I agree with you entirely about the whole the plant-based movement, and that has to be the future for the impact that it has on the environment and things like that. Uh, I went to a, a slaughterhouse in 1986. I was I was working for Fortune magazine. I did an uh, assignment for them on the biggest independently owned cattle ranches in America. One ranch was so big they had their own slaughterhouse, and you know they put a captive bolt to the brain. These animals are supposed to die very quickly, and this animal, one of the cows, didn't die, and it was hung upside down, they ripped the skin off of it and they start carving pieces of it off, you know, and it came around to me on this conveyor line hanging upside down this cow and it was looking at me as turning its head with its skin stripped off and I realized it was still alive. And I thought right then, I, I can't be part of this. You know, I had to, and I made this transition to to take out animals from my, my diet, land animals, because I thought 1986, I thought you still had to eat animals. So I maintained eating fish and I became a pescatarian. That's the only thing I ate, thinking that they're less sentient and intelligent, blah, blah, blah. And then when I did the cove, one of the last scenes in the cove is we take a hair sample for mercury test to test the mercury level in the hair of the deputy minister of fisheries. And I was in Japan, I was eating a lot of fish. I was eating, my, my son still is a professional fisherman. And he would send me hundreds of pounds of fish from his expeditions. And I, I was thought I was eating healthy. And breakfast, lunch, and dinner, a lot of times I would have tuna. And I thought when I we did this testing of the deputy minister of fisheries for the Cove, I thought, well, it's, I'd like to see what my hair, you know, the mercury in my hair is. And his, his was high. His was like, you know, back then they did it by parts per million, but it was like one part per million, which was considered extremely high. Like the baseline is like one part per million. His was eight and mine was 44. It was like, I was off the scale and I had... A whole myriad of things I never related to mercury poisoning. You know, it had short-term memory problems, achy joints, you know, a litany of things. And my doctor said, you're off the charts. You need to stop eating fish. And I was like, man, what am I going to eat? And I, I remember I was down in Los Angeles for the Academy Awards. And I met this woman. It was the first vegan I'd ever met. And, you know, because we went to a restaurant. And I didn't know she was vegan. You know, I asked what they had for plant-based food at the, with the, from the waiter. I said, she ordered something off the menu. I said, well, what do you eat? And she goes, everything else, you know, all plants, all protein originates from plants. You know, think it's just think about, you know, the things that you like about meat. It's usually, if you had it raw, most people wouldn't like it. It's the condiments, the plants that you put on it. That's what gives it the pleasure, the taste for me anyway. And that's, that was kind of my journey to become a plant-based was meeting this woman, Rebecca Mink, who's a clothing designer. And um, anyway, that's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting what you say, Lou, because I was uh, I was listening to a, a podcast earlier this week saying that Barack Obama only used to eat salmon and apparently only eat salmon all the time. So I think we might need to send a copy of the code over to him. Him <laughs> <laughs> uh, retested as well. But um, picking on a point you, you made just slightly before about, about the paper, the tipping point analogy with behavior change. I, <laughs> Harry was 100% right. I was jumping at the bit to jump in when Harry spoke because we are huge advocates for human behavior change and changing human behavior. We had um, a guest on uh, our first season who talks about vegan plant-based diets called Trent Grassian. And he did a really interesting study in the UK 
uh, I think it's the largest, I think I'm right, Haryana, it's the largest study anyone's ever done into why and how to get people to reduce beating. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. And something that he found something really interesting that you mentioned with Game Changers, which was the idea of diversity. And I know this is very, very topical right now, but he found in the UK that vegan campaigns overwhelmingly had uh, 80% of the time had uh, females in them. They were predominantly white based and featuring people in situations that were in high upper income families, if that makes sense, you know, individuals from those sort of families. And I was just wondering what your thoughts on are, is there ways that you think we can we can tackle this? Or do you agree there's, there's a need to tackle diversity within the animal welfare and wildlife conservation? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, we thought about that a lot before, way before Black Life Matters. If you look at the game changers, you know, you have Brian Jennings is black, you have Derek Morgan, uh, who's black. You have uh, the the runner from Australia, uh, Morgan. Um, I forget her name, but there's you know Lewis Hamilton's not white. Um, mm-hmm. Boy, it's like we have a lot of you know um, Patrick Baboumian is Iranian. Um, there's a lot of people that are not white in our film, and that was intentional. We try to get a really good mix because you know p- people of color. Uh, at least in America, there a lot of them are living in food deserts, places where it's very difficult to get fresh food. And so we knew that they were suffering in an inordinate amount. So we try to have aspirational characters from those races so that people tend to look at people like them and uh, and make decisions. So we wanted to you know sort of tip that balance so that we'd have a lot of people of color in our film touting the the diet because we just wanted to to show that you can look great, you can be healthy, you can have virility, all that stuff. All those boxes get ticked. And you know, by the way, yeah, you, we you know we did a we do a lot of testing of our films to make sure that they're working across a platform with different people. So we you know we kept on getting messages that there's not enough women in, not enough women in. We thought, well, it's, we really trying to reach men, but we listened to them, and the film became better. And what you try to do with a film is, with all of our films, is we test them. You have to test things. It's like a science experiment, right? The objective, kind of going back to what you're talking about, the animal rights movement, you can make a film that makes you feel good, that ticks your box, like you care, you care about animals so that you want other people to care about animals, but you want to make a film that's effective, pummeling people with the abuse of these animals, you might get the animal rights people to, even animal rights people don't want to hear that message. Yeah. When I talk to people like, oh, you know, when we find out I did the code, they said, oh, I can't see that. I already know what the message is. Well, if they don't know what the message is because they haven't seen it, the film's much more complicated than just a film about dolphin hunting. But they think they're they're, they're probably, the in, in some ways, some of them are the worst <laughs> advocates for the film because they won't see it. Yeah. To answer your question with Game Changers, we did think about that a lot. We, we test the films. We know that they're broken. Until people go from, the discussion goes from them thinking that there's not enough of something to, I wish it was longer. Mm. Then you know you've arrived at a winning formula. It's like people just want to see more of it. And you know, to that end, there's so much that I wanted. we wanted to talk about when we did the Game Changers. You know, I'm, I'm an older guy. I'm 63. And one of the the doctors in our film, Dr. Dean Ornish, he's talking about, you know, genes are your disposition, but they don't have to be your fate because you can actually change the genetic disposition of your genes just by your diet. And, you know, you can flick on the bad genes and turn on the good genes and turn off the bad genes just by, by diet and lifestyle. 
But he also said that he's, you know, he's a doctor, if people don't know. He's did studies going back 43 years where he can reverse heart disease using a whole foods plant-based diet. He did it with early stage diabetes, prostate cancer, and by extension, that would, you know, implicate breast cancer. And he was he's doing an experiment now where he's trying to reverse Alzheimer's with this diet, with the same the same diet that he's using to cure heart disease, diabetes, and cancers. He's using to try to heal Alzheimer's. There's no known cure for Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is on track to being the most devastating disease that we have in terms of killing people and in terms of the economy. Because when you, you get a heart attack, you know, about 80% of people die right away. That's their, the first thing that happens. But on the other hand, when uh, with Alzheimer's, it's a slow death, 10, 12 years, and it debilitates the person. They slowly erase what it means to be human. They, they're losing their memory. You know, one out, and one out of three people in the world are going to have it eventually because at the rate that we're, you know, eating animal products and, and having all these other stresses. And they've spent billions and billions of dollars on trying to find a drug, a, a cure for the disease, and they, nothing's happening. And Dean's trying to reverse it with a diet. So I'm doing a film right now with with Dr. Dean was trying to reverse Alzheimer's. And it looks like with the first cohorts, with early stage patients, it's working. And that's that's huge. That's incredible. There's five known blue zones in the world. These are places where people live the longest without chronic disease. 95% of the food consumed in the blue zones are whole foods, plant-based diet. So it's like Okinawa, which is called Land of the Immortals. Uh, Icaria, Greece, and I, another island is called Island Where People Forget to Die. Uh, Sardinia in Italy, a little village in, in Sardinia where you have more 100-year-olds plus than any other place in the world per, per capita. I think it's called the Nagoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And in Loma Linda, California, it's about 60 miles east of LA. Loma Linda, first of all, is a, the biggest population of Seventh-day Adventists in the world. And these are, their religion says that, you know, apparently God in Genesis says, let the fruit of the tree be thy meat. And so they take this literally and they have a plant-based diet predominantly. So about almost half the town of Loma Linda, about 24,000 people are plant-based. At the main grocery store there, they have a, a meat counter, but it's all the meats that I'm talking about, like all the soy-based meats. There's no, they don't actually sell meat from animals <laughs> and they sell like milk from animals, but it's like on the bottom shelf, the rest of it, they have this whole big selection of plant-based milks. But the thing is, it's a small town, you know, 300 people at the gym there are 80 years and older. You go to the wow. gym and it's like they're flipping around on the parallel bars like a gymnast. You go to the church and they're, you know, you see 90 year olds skipping down the sidewalk like kindergarten kids. I mean, it's just amazing to see that there's a, this village of people that live to be 100 years or older you know, living improbably like just east of L.A. And now it's, it's interesting, this Highway 10, Interstate 10, is it sort of divides San Bernardino. And one of the healthiest populations in the entire world in Loma Linda, certainly in the United States by far. And then on the other side of the highway, you know, drinking the same water, breathing the same air is the San Bernardinians that had the first McDonald's in the world. <laughs> and, you know, the fast food restaurants are over there. And so the dichotomy, you know, what are these two populations doing differently? And people say, well, there's a, you know, there's a socioeconomic difference, but really, you know, the blue zones, people are poor there. These are not rich villages. These aren't like super, you know, rich white people living in a gated community. These are people eating vegetables. They're growing their own food and they're eating predominantly plants. But here's the thing, Dean and Aisha Surzai, they had this brain health and Alzheimer's clinic. And they when they opened up, nobody came. 
because they don't have Alzheimer's hardly exists there with people that are eating plants. They had to go to San Bernardino to get people to, to join their Alzheimer's clinic. Now they've had, I think, 5,000 people come through the clinic. Only 13 of them have been vegetarians. Wow. Now, remember, in a town where almost half the people are vegetarian, you'd expect half the people in the clinic to be plant-based, but they aren't. There's only 13 out of thir- out of 5,000 people. Wow. So these numbers are are crazy. So if you're looking at like, you know, trying to reverse heart disease, Alzheimer's, all these, all, you know, to me, to me, this is the biggest overlooked solution to all the problems that can heal the planet that we've overlooked. And it's right in front of us. And so we tend to, you know, my organization look at what's the positive benefits, you know, and especially these days, you know, we do have compassion fatigue right now. Look, at we're all sheltered in place. And by the way, we're all sheltered in place. Why? Because people were eating freaking animals. Yeah. You know, if you look at the three coronaviruses, the big ones, you know, like MERS, the SARS, you know, in 2002, 2003, the one out of Wuhan, they're all caused by bats being in proximity to animals. These are coronaviruses. They originate with bats. They eat bats there. They actually, you can go to the market and get bats because there's something called Zhenbu. They believe that in that culture, Asian cultures, that if you eat the animals, you can get part of what it's good at. So if uh, bats can see at night. So this, if you eat a bat, it's good for your vision. So you can actually, you you get prescribed, if you go to Chinese traditional medicine, they'll say you can eat a bat or actually eat bat shit. You can use it as a tea. I mean, I've done this before. You can go over to, you know, San Francisco and go to Chinese traditional medicine shop. They'll sell you a bat shit that's full of viruses that you can put in your tea. So it's it's literally this crazy bat shit idea (laughs) that, you know, that why we're all sheltered in place. And, you know, you think, well, that's just crazy Asians. Well, we have to say three quarters of the pandemics we have are caused by eating animals, swine flu, bird flu, cow pox became chicken pox. And it's all these poxes that we have are caused by eating animals. Most of the diseases that we have are caused by a relationship for animals. Animal agriculture got us in this problem. It gave us a lot of great things. We were able to, you know, not spend all this energy going into the fields, raising food. We had this ready food source that was right there. But it's also gave us all these diseases. Animal agriculture brought us, you know, you look at what caused AIDS and Ebola, you know, somebody cannibalizing a primate. One person eats a primate and, you know, that brought 25 million people died, you know, so far of of HIV and AIDS. It's something my organization works on as well and have worked on for a while. One of the places we work is on the dog meat trade and cat meat trade in Southeast Asia. And in Indonesia at the moment, we're running projects out there. And we've been talking for a long time about these zoonotic diseases and the contamination. It's been part of our campaign and our argument and our messaging, not just about uh, the things that affect people, but you know, it's, it's rabies and, and everything else that's in there. And people are just starting to listen. I mean, it, it took a global pandemic, but people are starting <laughs> to pay attention to it now. I think what's wonderful now is when you're talking about plant-based diets is how much easier it is now. The availability, and you were, you know, you were talking about tipping points before, and I think in plant-based, we've reached this tipping point where stuff is available and it is accessible and everybody's jumping on it because it seems to be the largest area of growth within the food sector. And, and like you said, that's going to have such a huge impact on the environment because the land that's currently being used to produce food for animals can actually be used to produce food for people. And we have the right amount of land there now. So, I mean, there is room for hope. 
With your organization, with OPS, you mentioned one of the things that you're working on now, but what are the other projects that you're working on to continue what you've already started? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, God, I got a bunch of great ones out there right now. We're working on the series on plant-based diets, you know, like based on the things that we couldn't talk about in mm. the Game Changers because it was really focused in on athletes and the advantages with them. So I'm doing this one on a film on reversing Alzheimer's. Mm. We're doing one on plastic pollution. I'm doing a film with uh, Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama based on their book, A Joy, How Do You Find Joy in a World of Sorrow? We're doing a film on the Loser ecosystem. It's called The Last Place on Earth because it's the last place where tigers, elephants, rhinos are together in the wild, um, but it's being decimated by pomo plantations. We're looking at these activists that are reversing that. So it's a very hopeful story. I'm doing a story on women's empowerment, but we're doing it through these four female surfers that got parity, pay parity in the sport of big wave surfing. These women, you know, fought to get themselves in the lineup and they they did. So yeah, we're working on, you know, all the films are revolving around social change, but now it's, uh, you know, they're, you know, if anybody ever wants to help finance a film, we, we have a few of them. <laughs> you know, I, I was talking to somebody this weekend. I said, well, if you want to make money, you know, I always tell an investor, you know, better off taking your money going to Vegas. But if you want to change the world, you know, we're the, we're the place to do it. We don't take on any projects that don't have an aspect of this. But, you know, each one is crafted differently, you know, trying to figure out how do you change people's perception and the way that they think and the way that they act. And each one's quite different. Uh, but the one on the Dalai Lama and uh, Desmond Tutu, you know, you can actually, like I was mentioning earlier, you can actually change compassion actually changes physically your brain and just like seven hours of you know 30 minutes a day for for two weeks you can change they can see changes in the brain growing when you do compassion training and you can actually over time rewire the way that you act now the reason why the compassion is so integral is like in america it's like it's in our constitution the pursuit of happiness but it's not really happiness that we're after. We're after joy. And the only, like I said earlier, the only way that you really get joy is when you're helping other people, when you're helping other things, when you're trying to make the world a better place. That's what gives you joy. It almost gives you more joy than the person that you're helping or the thing that you're helping because we're hardwired for it. And the more that we can train ourselves to be looking at the other person's point of view and trying to use our skill set to be more compassionate, to be more thoughtful, to having our actions be more about other people than ourselves, the better off we're all going to be. So that that film I've got great hope for because it's um, it'll fundamentally, hopefully, change the way that people regard other people and other animals and their environment. You know, that's I, I think a little bit like what you know before we well, I guess we were talking about at the at the very beginning where you thought that the cove changed your, your life and, and it did. It's like when I was looking at the footage of Desmond Tutu and Dalai Lama talking to each other, this sort of shock of electricity went through me. It's like. God, this is the stuff I wanted to do when I was a kid, you know, and, and luckily I found my way back to doing what I was passionate, what I really felt I was on the planet to do. But there's all these distractions that we have at Geographic. I, the first story I did was, you know, about garbage and recycling. I thought this is the way forward. But then they said, oh, he can make garbage look good. So they gave me all these other stories to do that. I was being fulfilled on one level with the happiness box being ticked, but I was doing stuff that I wasn't really that... I was good at it, but it wasn't feeding this sort of inner joy. And now what I'm doing with OPS, it feels like I am getting that inner joy. It does. I do wake up in the morning charged up, ready to do something, happy with what mission that we're on. 
because I've found that path. And hopefully that film will be do what for other people, what the cove did for you. I, I don't know how we're going to start out the film on the Dalai Lama Desmond Tutu, but I know we're going to finish. The objective is I want people to come out of there and think differently about how they act with other people, how they act with themselves, that they're thinking more about are they pursuing the things that give them joy, you know, or are they pursuing the things that give them society's idea of happiness, which we know don't fuel us. As soon as you get like the job that you know, makes you a lot of money, it's like, you know, if it's not in service to other people, then it's like you get to that mountaintop of happiness and it's like, you think, oh, is that all there is? You know, is it, you get that new car, it's like, ooh, you know, or the house, you know, the big house, you know, in America, it's like, God, now you have to curate that crap for the rest <laughs> of your life. And it's not going to really make you that happy, I don't think. So that was the Animal Chat podcast with Louis Sahoyas. After listening to that, and you haven't watched The Cove, I challenge you to go away and watch it because it's one of the most moving documentaries that I've watched in a long time. It's got a fantastic story within it. Just a blockbuster of a movie, really. It really is. As we talked about in the podcast, it's not even thinking about it as a nature documentary because it's not. Mm. It's extraordinary. It's this investigative thriller an absolutely fantastic film by any standard at all. And to have followed that up with Game Changers and everything else that he's done, it's just watch those movies, watch The Cove, watch Game Changers, check them out, and they'll change your life. Honestly, they will. We spoke with Leah Garces in our, in our previous episode about the power of stories and storytelling. Stories are so powerful. They resonate with people. And I think if you're an individual or an organization or a movement of some kind and you're wanting to to reach an audience or get something out that you feel isn't being listened to or isn't being addressed, then stories are so powerful because they often have humans in them and people and we like to connect with people. I know there's the animal side of it, which we're interested in, but that human side of it and the human journeys that people go on, whether it's Rico Barry in the movie The Cove to with Leah, you know, she talks about characters in her story as well. They're so powerful. And I think that's why The Cove was so groundbreaking and continues to be almost, in my opinion, one of the best animal conservation-related documentaries out there. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I'll be winning an Oscar for that monologue, I reckon. I doubt it. And about time too. And about time too, I you say. You say that, Matt, but I'm probably just going to edit it out because... Mm. It's a bit. If this was an Oscar ceremony, yeah, the music would have been playing about halfway through that, to be honest, and the microphone stand would have been dropping into the stage. So, Harry Ekman, that was our episode with Louis Hoyas. We want everyone to please like, share, subscribe. It bumps us up. It gets more listeners, gets more downloads, and it helps us reach more people. But, Mr. Harry Ekman, next week... We have a beauty. We certainly... We're going from the cove... To tigers. To tigers. We've got our first... Is it our first... Oh, no, I would say Tim was our first tiger person. True, yeah. Yeah. But this guy, we are going on to... Who have we got, Harry? I'll let you explain. We have got the absolutely extraordinary chief scientist and director of programs of the organization Panthera, John Goodridge. And John... Wow. I mean, John has spent his life tracking and monitoring and studying tigers and has probably done as much for tiger conservation as pretty much anyone alive. 
and the stories he was telling us about his work and the situation with tigers at the moment it was just fascinating just absolutely fascinating listening to him and a real joy to have that conversation with him yeah we talk about his work in siberia where he worked with communities and wild tigers to tiger farming to the tiger bone trade to exotic pets such as tigers in in america and then to the work that panthera does as a big cat organization and the challenges it's facing in the modern world and where he sees tigers as a species going forwards so it's a really really interesting chat we had with him a real privilege to have to have him and uh but in the meantime folks get in touch with us on our social medias share like subscribe and make sure you join us for the next episode with john goodridge p h d phd he's got a phd just sort of put that out there so he would be dr john goodridge with dr john goodridge <laughs> p h d h d is it hd or hd oh my god i can't believe you're doing this you're such a racist when it comes to us northerners listen we speak god's language all right badly but you do listen i ask you one thing have you watched game of thrones bastard right <laughs> bastard right have you watched game of thrones of course i have who is the most popular best family in that program? It's the Lannisters. Oh, you southern prick. As if it is the Lannisters. <laughs> so thanks again for listening, everybody. And we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.